Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. Hello, everybody. We are back from Christmas, and this is the first podcast of 2024. So welcome. Thank you for joining us. Now, I don't know about you, but January is always a funny month where I'm always trying to figure out what on earth the year ahead has in store. And so with that very question, today we're joined by Sam Lichtenstein from Rain, and we're going to discuss their global forecast for the year ahead. From what I've read of the forecast, 2024 looks like it will be the most influential year that will set the tone for the rest of this decade. So pour yourself a drink, join us for this discussion, and find out what to keep an eye on for the year ahead. I hope you find this episode interesting. Thank you for listening. Take care. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Sam, welcome back to the podcast. How are you? Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here at the start of 2024. Yeah, it was great to have you back on. So for the benefit of listeners who may not have listened to our episode last year, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your work at RAIN? Sure. So I am one of the two directors of analysis at RAIN, uh, which stands for Risk Assistance Network and Exchange. We're a US-based risk intelligence company with a global outlook. So we mm. cover the entire globe and our basic work is to not only tell people what's going on, but crucially forecast why it's going to matter in the future. And so we're very well known for our annual forecasts. And then in, in addition, we do three quarterly updates throughout the year for Q2, 3, and 4. So uh, it's a, a longstanding tradition that we have, and it really drives our entire analytic program for the entire year. Yeah, fantastic. Well, these forecasts are brilliant. The one we had last year was really great, really interesting, and quite a lot of things that were talked about became hot points. In fact, I was just reflecting on the Middle East section, and you – in the report, you mentioned that uh, obviously there was a risk of an uptake of violence in, in uh, Israel, Gaza, and unfortunately that happened. Um, so you guys were definitely sort of uh, on the on the money with that. Um, so this 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 particular report this year, I mean, it looks like twenty twenty four is going to be uh, a very important year that will probably set the tone for the rest of the decade. And before we go into the specifics of the report, could you just tell us a little bit about how these annual geopolitical forecasts are actually? put together. Yeah, of course. It's simultaneously the most rewarding thing that we do. It is also by far the hardest thing that we do. Uh, because yeah, of course, you know, writing any piece of intelligence analysis where you're trying to make a forecast is difficult because you're inherently operating in a world of uncertainty, limited information, etc. But now try doing this for the entire globe and for over the course of a full year, um, if not a little bit beyond at times, and it becomes really, really hard. So thankfully, we do have a well-established 
way that we do this. And it starts as with, you know, a lot of good ideas with just simple brainstorming among our team, uh, beginning at least a month before the end of the year, where all of our analysts, not only in their kind of regional groupings, but across uh, our regional divisions are talking to each other. What's the outlook? Sometimes there are very obvious events. So elections, for instance, that gives us a very clear trigger to look at. But sometimes we are looking at uh, larger trends that don't have clear touch points. And so we're looking at kind of the background drivers um, and constraints on these things. And then through a number of meetings uh, with our entire analyst team and other members of the company, We'll put together our list of basic top lines, and then we'll flesh out using the same analytic trade crap that we do for all of our work, which is basically focusing much more on the outlook and the implications. We're not trying to tell people what is going on. We are fundamentally making a forecast, telling them what we expect to happen, and then crucially, what we expect the impacts of that to be. Because a forecast is is not useful if you just tell folks, okay, well, this is what we are kind of making a call of what we expect, but we actually mm-hmm. want to get to the, the final point of why does it matter to people? Um, what are the actual implications that we're looking at in terms of economic relations or security dynamics or political stability, etc.? Yeah, yeah. It's not about trying to be Nostradamus, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's a little more involved than just flipping a, a heads or tails coin. Uh, but sometimes yeah. uh, we do have very heated debates among our team. And uh, we end up always finding kind of a, a, a compromise on some of the more contentious issues that hopefully provides yeah. value, uh, but still uh, can be kind of within the uh, w- agreed upon by all members of the team. <laughs> <laughs> Does, it's unfortunate it happens around um obviously you've got the kind of deadlines coming up in december which is around the holidays <laughs> can you assume you're an analyst at rain that over the holidays you're just hoping nothing significant happens that will change everything you you've got it exactly right chris uh it's always a tough time because in addition to it being uh the holiday season where people are out of the office, spending time with their families. Mm. We, of course, try to give our team a well-deserved break. They're also exactly, as you said, hoping, okay, I really th- hope that this thing that we've been forecasting doesn't change in the next few days. And I will admit there are some times that at the proverbial 11th hour, we email our yeah. graphics and production team and say, okay, we need to change a word here or insert a, a phrase there. Um, I don't think that in, in my recent memory, though, we've, we've had to make a, a really analytic substantive change change uh, because the good news is if we've done our work well, then anything Mm. that we forecast um, should incorporate what could happen in kind of the final days of the year. And so there may be some changes around the margin, um, but I can definitely say this year there were no last minute major uh, reshuffles. And and hopefully now with the forecast being out for for a few days, we won't uh, have to make any significant updates for Q2 because most of our forecasting for at least the first quarter of the year uh, will Mm. be spot on. Mm. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Well, um, the very big question, can you give us a sort of overview summary of what to expect in 2024? Yeah, you know, this is um, a media narrative that we've seen. uh, And I like to think that we were internally discussing this long before the slew of media articles came out in the past week. But fundamentally, this is a year of elections. Um, I believe seven out of the 10 uh, most populous countries are going to be holding elections. Uh, We're talking about billions of people going to the polls. And it's actually even more if you include Um, not just national elections, but supranational elections, like for the European Parliament, um, and then municipal, local elections in a number of countries. But even if we're just looking at the national elections, 
that's what's going to define the year. Um, now, obviously, yeah. these take place in very different contexts. For instance, Russia will hold a, a presidential election, if you can call it an election, uh, yes. in, in, in the first quarter. Yeah, I think we know the outcome already. <laughs> yeah, that, that's. I, I will say that's one of the easier calls to make. Um, spoiler alert, uh, President Putin will win re-election. Um, but then, of course, there are a lot more contentious ones You know, in, in our home country, the United States. Everyone is you know holding its breath already, even though the vote won't be for a number of months now. Um, and then, of course, across the world, you have everyone from the UK, which it seems like it's likely to hold an election in the second half of the year, to countries like Mexico, Indonesia, uh, South Africa, and those elections are going to have huge implications, um, whether the victory goes to an opposition party, whether the current government retains power. There are going to be a, a whole host uh, of global things to be on everyone's radar because of those. And so if we were talking about kind of a theme for 2024, I would really say it's driven by those elections. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. And um, one thing that's quite interesting in the, in the report is um, you talk a bit about the consequences of if President Biden wins re-election or whether Trump wins the election and becomes president again. I don't know if there's anything you want to sort of talk about, some of the differences between the two and how that can affect sort of the geopolitical outlooks. They both have quite different philosophies. Yeah, to, to say the least. Um, and this is, you know, this is actually something we debated on a bit with our team because we didn't know how much to talk about this in our 2024 forecast, because obviously any implications of this won't be seen until 2025, even if President Trump Trump were to win a second term, he of course wouldn't take office until January 2025. So the impacts uh, won't be felt for another year. But we felt it was important mm -hmm. to include this as a really key driver because even though the election won't happen until November, countries across the globe are already preparing. And I can tell you that we've already, even at the end of 2023, started receiving a number of client inquiries about ways in which US policy and therefore global events could shift depending on whether Biden or Trump wins the vote. Um, and so, you know, when you look across the board, there are obviously a huge number of differences. Um, so we, we can start with some of the proverbial uh, easier ones, um, for instance, on climate and the environment. You know, President Biden has made, um, even though he admittedly has opened up a lot more oil drilling, et cetera, he's made environmental policy a key differentiator uh, with the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. I think it's safe to say that if uh, President Trump were to win re-election, you'd see um, the United States probably re-exit the Paris Agreement. Uh, there'd be even yeah. more uh, drilling for oil and gas that we would see big reductions uh, in climate ambitions. And that's important not only because the United States is obviously the second largest emitter after China, uh, but because, of course, what the United States does will also set the tone for a lot of other countries. And when you have the Biden administration, that's at least pressuring countries like China, like India, other big emitters to, to up their climate ambition. That's one thing. But if you have a Trump White House uh, that basically says, we're going to proverbial drill, baby drill, Obviously, China, India, other emitters feel no pressure to to curb their own emissions. So this is this is a policy with massive global implications because you know you you just need to read the news basically any day to see new dire warnings that you know the world is heading in the wrong trajectory in combating climate change. And so that's one key differentiator between the two of them. For also thinking about global conflicts, obviously Ukraine comes up top of mind. The yeah. Biden administration has made strong support for Ukraine a key differentiator with the Trump 
administration um, and another Trump White House, I think it's safe to say, that would definitely decrease uh, support for Kiev. We've already seen Republicans in Congress uh, hold up more U.S. support for Ukraine uh, over border security issues. And a return of the Trump administration, which was already, to put it diplomatically, um, different in its policy towards Russia, uh, would absolutely see the United States decrease support. And that, of course, matters a big deal because if the United States is decreasing support, that also is going to have big implications for Europe's support, which would also presumably then uh, face complications. And this is something we know Vladimir Putin is just kind of waiting for uh, in Moscow Mm -hmm. and and biding his time, knowing that time is kind of on his side especially if Trump wins and and obviously uh, a massive decrease in Western support for Ukraine uh, would have global ramifications, not only for security in Europe and Eurasia, but yeah. what that means for for other conflicts and countries that are considering uh, you know, their own challenges. There are some things, though, that I think are worth pointing out that are probably going to be similar. Um, and the chief mm. one that I'd highlight here is China policy. Um, you know, mm. Trump in, in his first administration made uh, very aggressive noises about going after China for for all host of issues and the Biden administration you know while they may rhetorically sound a bit different if you read the the policy papers that come out of say the Department of Defense the White House they're strikingly similar in the way they frame China as a very strategic the largest threat to to US security um and so we expect there would actually be a great deal of continuity, but what might change is kind of the focus. So for instance, the Biden administration has really emphasized technology restrictions um, and trying to curb China's access to high tech, everything from um, you know semiconductors uh, across the board to communications, uh, artificial intelligence, et cetera. The Trump administration, uh, as you as you know, Trump famously called himself, or perhaps infamously called himself, tariff man, really makes U.S. trade policy the focus of its uh, you know fo- focus on China. And so you'll likely see the same kind of aggressive counter-China policies, but more with an emphasis on hiking tariffs um, against China specifically, and then to to be honest, across the globe, uh, because Trump has basically insinuated that we should all be preparing for for a global trade war with the U.S. Uh, Directing reciprocal tariffs basically on any country that has them against the United States. So China policy is one area where um, you're likely to see some continuity, even if the focus uh, from, say, high-tech restrictions goes a bit more towards the tariffs. Obviously, there are a whole lot of things that we could talk about here, uh, but I don't want to belabor us just on the United States. Despite me being an American, I'm well aware that our country is not the only one that matters, and there's a whole lot going across the globe in 2024 that I want to make sure we can chat through. Oh, yes, definitely, definitely. One last one last thing just before we move on to the uh, separate regions. Obviously, growing concerns about AI is a bit of a theme of this year coming ahead. I don't know if you have any sort of thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, the emergence of ChatGPT in November 2022, I mean, to say it was a game changer would be an understatement. Mm-hmm. Um, we are truly in the infancy of the AI revolution. Um, I think, honestly, anyone that has a strong forecast knowing and predicting where we're going to end up even in a year, let alone five years, probably doesn't know what they're talking about because there's so much uncertainty. The pace of change here is, is incredible. What we are definitely likely to see, though, in 2024 is that um, the kind of race and differing perspectives to regulate AI are going to ramp up. Um, Obviously, a few weeks ago, the European Union became really the first jurisdiction uh, with its new AI Act to incorporate um, kind of a a regulatory framework. Um, The EU is, of course, very well known for for doing all these sorts of frameworks. You know, it, it instantly drew a lot of comparisons 
adjustments uh, to the GDPR data regulation. Um, and so what you're likely to see in 2024 is more of the kind of shifting pulls among different air, global areas of power. So the European Union has very much kind of a harm prevention framework that it's now following. The United States, um, perhaps unsurprisingly compared to Europe on many things, is a little more um, free market, so to speak, and emphasizing really um, the development of the tech industry. Um, we're unlikely to see any sort of national regulation in the United States. That means kind of states on their own will become more responsible for, for what to do. And then you have other global powers like China, India, Russia that are all taking varying approaches. And so we're much more likely to see a divergence here in global tech regulation um, than anything approaching kind of continuity and, and unity. Cool. Thank you for that. So let's talk about the the different regions in the report then last year we finished our conversation on sub-saharan africa that was um in your words sort of pretty much one of the most important regions to keep an eye out for in 2023 so i was wondering if we could start with sub-saharan africa and kind of talk about what to look out for in the year ahead Sure. So Sub-Saharan Africa is a great place to start because if we're talking about global elections uh, that are probably flying under the radar a bit, we have a momentous one here. And this is actually how we lead off our section, which is in South Africa. Um, the African National Congress, which has been in power since the end of apartheid, um, is facing its kind of biggest crisis uh, since then. Um, and yeah. there's a real risk uh, that it actually may lose its parliamentary majority um, in the elections that are going to be taking place midway through the year likely um, we to you know we we put in our report that we forecast that they will be able to probably hold on to a very very slim majority but there's a real risk that we outline of various different ways that this could go in which either they for instance, lose their majority but retain a plurality and are able to cooperate uh, with other parties to the least likely but most impactful scenario in which they would actually lose their majority to, to some sort of opposition group, probably the Democratic Alliance. Um, we don't see that as likely, but what's important here is that the ANC has a huge legitimacy problem. The economy is in shambles, um, massive you know, problems with the electricity uh, industry, um, facing huge surge in crime. I mean, the, the list is, is tragically long. And for obviously the region's uh, chief economy there, this is a, an election to watch and definitely one uh, that's going to have ramifications far beyond uh, just the country itself. Yeah, definitely. And um, is this a growing concern of jihadist terrorist groups in the region as well? Is there anything you want to sort of say on? on that. Yeah, this is this is tragically uh, becoming much more of a regional story. I think this is probably where we ended off last year um, with mm -hmm. uh, with us discussing how jihadist groups are basically poised to just continue their slow and steady expansion across the region. And that's exactly what we saw in 2023. And that's tragically what we're forecasting for 2024. Basically, we now have a, a wide zone of instability across the Sahel, you know, Mali and Burkina Faso in particular, but increasingly seeing places in like Niger. And then slowly creeping down to kind of these little literal West African states, so Benin, Ghana, etc. Um, and if you kind of just look at a map and plot on the map over the past few years, kind of the this uh, geographic space of attacks, you see not only the numbers increasing, but the geographic breadth expanding. And that's obviously a huge threat because you're now in a region of the Sahel where you have growing jihadist influence. And by the way, growing influence from a number of other armed actors that aren't explicitly jihadist groups, but a whole wide swath of militant rebel groups. Um, you've obviously had numerous coups in the region. Some countries have, yeah. have now seen multiple in the span of a few years. Um, you have uh, French and Western 
Western forces that are being basically summarily kicked out of, of virtually all of these countries. Um, and you have the United States that's now on the back foot. Um, even just yesterday, the, the Wall Street Journal reported that the US was now basically looking at drone bases in literal West African states, with the implication being that it kind of had given up on Niger, which is its last main uh, drone base in the region after the coup there earlier um, in 2023. So this is obviously a huge problem, chiefly, of course, for the people there, because you know these groups, whether they're jihadist or, or not, I mean, just the, the scale of humanitarian tragedy and violence is, is appalling. Uh, but of course, it also has larger global ramifications, you know, Groups that may be focused on local issues tend to not always stay that way. They generally expand mm. their you know goals beyond just the immediate region that they're operating in. Um, and then, of course, what we've also seen is that as these groups are expanding, um, it's opened up opportunities for Russia uh, to insert its own influence there. And you know, tragically for these countries, you know, whose governments basically say, "Oh, well, you know, the French or the UN, they aren't helping protect us. We're going to bring in the Russian paramilitary." Well, the the tragic news is every single time that happens, things only get worse. Uh, because unsurprisingly, when you have Russian paramilitary groups uh, that are operating here, that are perpetuating um, more abuses, that are not focused on uh, protecting civilians, but more about protecting kind of the the coup leaders of these countries, etc. It's a recipe for for just a worsening situation. Uh, but it does also give Russia a way to exert its influence, particularly against France as the former colonial power. And that obviously has global ramifications kind of just beyond the main region that we're talking about. Mm, no, indeed, indeed. So one to keep an eye on, definitely. Let's uh, move on to the Middle East and North Africa. Um, yeah, can you talk to us about sort of what to expect in those regions? Yeah, so uh, perhaps unsurprising, the Middle East is, is going to be a focus. Um, we we decided, uh, you know, you, you spoke earlier about having to make a, a last minute change. And thankfully, yeah. uh, we didn't have to make a last minute change, but based on our uh, fourth quarter forecast, uh, which came out just before the uh, Hamas-Israel war broke out, the focus mm -hmm. of our annual forecast changed dramatically from what we originally envisioned it being. Um, and so let me start, obviously, with the Israel-Hamas war because it's top of mind for everyone. You know what we expect is that the intensity of the, is the war is going to decline um, earlier in 2024. Even you know last week we saw Israel say that it was going to start removing some troops from Gaza. Um, you know to to put bluntly, there's only so many so much more fighting that Israel can do in the territory. It's very very small. Um, there's only so much uh, so many more uh, Hamas militants that it can kill given its current campaign. And so at some point we expect um, in early 2024 that the fighting will decline. Um, but to be very clear, it, the fighting will not end. Uh, instead, what we're expecting is kind of the inevitable emergence of a Hamas-led insurgency in the Strip. Um, Israel you know, has been completely unable to find a, a civilian partner that's willing and able to kind of take over after you know, the, the main fighting ends. And that means it's effectively going to be forced to reoccupy the Strip, even though that's certainly not what anyone wants. Um, and that will inevitably create a lot of animosity among the population, even by Israel's own count. I think it's, you know, recently has said it's, it's estimated it's killed maybe eight or 9,000 Hamas militants, even if you take that at face value, 
Israel's own estimates, you know, put the number of Hamas militants at, at far higher than that. I think most recently the estimate was about 30,000. So we're still talking about a lot of people uh, that it ostensibly wants to kill or capture that are still around. Mm. So we're going to see an insurgency there. And then what we've forecast and what is tragically coming true is the risk of regional escalation is absolutely going to remain on the table. You know, to be very clear, all the parties involved, despite rhetoric, despite the incidents we've seen for the past few weeks and months, it's been very calibrated. Nobody is looking to actually stoke a direct confrontation here. However, there are so many fragile tripwires that it means that this risk is going to stay on the table, whether or not people are actively trying to expand the conflict. That could happen in a number of ways. Obviously, we've seen the Houthis in Yemen um, and attacks in the Red Sea, most recently being one area of conflict. Um, the northern border with Lebanon, I would argue, is the one we're really watching out for. And of course, we've already seen a little bit of that just in the past week with uh, the suspected, I think, all but certain Israeli attack, um, killing a, a Hamas leader there in Beirut. Um, and I should also flag, you know, Israel has made very clear uh, that it intends to assassinate Hamas leaders no matter where they are. And so we can expect mm -hmm. more of these attacks and more flashpoints. And you know the the big uh, kind of you know actor in the background is Iran itself. You know, despite its very bellicose rhetoric, um, it has very clearly not wanted to directly confront Israel. Notably, both sides um, have not you know explicitly blamed the other um, for or taken credit for the October seventh attacks. Um, they are clearly trying to keep their conflict to a proxy conflict. Um, but the the longer you know conflict goes on in Gaza, the longer um, you have the risk of Israeli retaliation into Lebanon that would really impact Iran's chief proxy, which is Hezbollah. And by the way, the Iranian nuclear issue is still in the background. The more the mm. risk of, of escalation is going to be there. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, thank you for that. Um, I was interested about the, you mentioned about the uh, rise of attacks potentially against oil and gas infrastructure in places like Saudi Arabia. I don't know if you could talk a little bit about that concern. It's in the, it's in the report. Yeah. So, you know, one thing that we're focused on as a major area of potential escalation and one thing, you know, a lot of our, our clients are thinking through is what is what is the pathway to which Iran or, or its proxies resume attacking civilian infrastructure, particularly energy mm. infrastructure, critical infrastructure? Um, and, you know, we've seen this happen previously um, where um, Iran and its proxies have gone after energy targets, particularly in Saudi Arabia. Mm. Um, and, you you know, our concern right now is, okay, if Iran is trying or its proxies are trying to kind of asymmetrically hit back at, at the West, um, going after targets um, for oil and gas infrastructure like major oil fields, processing facilities, export facilities, et cetera, um, is one way to do it. Um, now, so far, um, you've seen Saudi Arabia basically be at pains to not make itself a target for Iranian or proxy attacks. You know, for instance, Saudi Arabia, at least publicly, has, has not even even signed up to the U.S. Maritime Initiative in the Red Sea, uh, basically trying to stay out of the proverbial line of sight of Iran and its proxies. Mm -hmm. And you know, despite the the past few months of war, we haven't seen any notable attacks within Saudi Arabia against oil and gas infrastructure. Um, so this is one way, though, that things could really quickly spiral, and there would all there also be a, a, an immediate effect on 
global oil prices uh, because Saudi Arabia just being the, the linchpin of production in the region um, and kind of the the war premium, so to speak, on top of the uncertainty of, of the global market would definitely see prices spike if you took offline for even just a number of days, you know, one of these major facilities. Yeah, yeah, that's quite a big concern that. So uh, definitely want to keep an eye on, on that one. Um, let's move to Asia Pacific. Um, so uh, yeah, it, this is quite an interesting area because got the elections in Taiwan this year, haven't we? Yeah, coming up. Um, that's going to be one of our first elections. Um, and obviously, this is also being watched intensely because of what it means for the China-Taiwan dynamic. You know, I do want to be clear one piece of perhaps good news. Um, you know, we still don't think that a Chinese invasion of Taiwan uh, is likely in 2024. Um, having said that, there are a lot of things that can still go really, really wrong um, in the region that kind of inch us yeah. closer to that scenario later this decade when we think it would be much more likely. Um, so, you know, as you mentioned, the thing that we're immediately starting out watching for is the the Taiwanese election. Um, this is going to be yeah. taking place, um, I guess, next weekend, uh, given when we're recording this right now, Chris. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, this is something that's going to see both the president and the legislator elected. Um, and this is important because right now you have the DPP, the party in charge that takes a comparatively more hawkish position on China, more pro-sovereignty. And if polling is right, um, its uh, presidential candidate will win again, um, and that would keep the DPP in charge of the presidency, which is both important practically and also symbolically. Now, the legislature is a different matter. Um, the DPP actually um, is probably not going to have a majority, um, which for Taiwan and its own policymaking and internal dynamics is important. But what we're really focused on is the China-Taiwan dynamic, and who holds the presidency of Taiwan will absolutely affect that. Um, you know, as I said, we're not forecasting any sort of Chinese invasion or anything approaching that if the DPP does win this election. But what we do expect is a ramping up of that strategy of, of military and economic coercion that we've seen for at least the past few years, where China will input more trade restrictions on Taiwan. Um, you'll see, you know, uh, an uptick as as we've already seen the past few years of military exercises, um, air incursions um, of its uh, airspace, um, naval incursions of nearby seas. Um, and all of these serve not only as kind of a, a coercive symbolic effect, uh, but also they're practical ways for the Chinese to practice an eventual evasion or other form of kind of military um, aggression against Taiwan. And, you know, I should flag that we think of Taiwan as one island, um, and it does have one yeah. main island, but that's not the only case. It does have one that's, for instance, much, much closer to Chinese territory and much farther from Taiwan, which, you know, to be blunt, if China were to ever, you know, try to attack it, would, would easily overcome the Taiwanese defenses there. So, you know, when we're thinking about Taiwan and, and ways that this situation could escalate but not result in formal war, what China does with, you know, this island, what it does maybe with sea cables around Taiwan, cyber attacks, constant uh, you know um, harassment of its airspace and, and naval territory, all these are, are on the table and they matter beyond the region um, because obviously you know a global you know or, or China Taiwan war would have massive global ramifications. Um, again, not what we're forecasting this year, but assuming that there is a DPP presidency again, and you have the continual ramping up of this coercive strategy, in later years, some sort of Chinese aggression becomes more likely, and that would have 
global economic, military, political ramifications that honestly pale compared to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, not least because it would be almost assured that the United States uh, would get involved in some way. Mm, yeah, yeah. We definitely don't want that to, to happen. One other, one other thing that stood out in the report to me was about the um, was about the, sort of the tech sector and how the US is trying to decouple its supply chain from China that could benefit other Southeast Asian kind of countries. Um, I don't know if there's anything you could talk about with that. Yeah, so you know, I guess we we spoke about this a little bit at the beginning of the Biden administration's strategy vis-a-vis China has really been to try to throttle its tech sector via various restrictions yeah. on um, on exports to the country, both from U.S. suppliers, but then also other global suppliers. Talking chiefly in the semiconductor industry, uh, but you know beyond that. And so this is definitely something we expect to just kind of slowly expand, not only with more restrictions in areas that we've seen, but also a slow expansion um, into other high tech areas. And things like um, AI technologies, communications, etc. Um, and you know, you know, if you're thinking about how uh, to throttle Chinese economic development. Restricting some of these key technologies um, is a real pain point, um, and the Chinese economy has has been able to overcome some of them. But there's some real gaps that it won't be able to fill if it loses access to some of these things. Um, that, of course, is notable not only for China, uh, but also for a lot of other countries because it opens them up um, to potential Chinese retaliation if they join kind of this US-led campaign. It also opens up a number of business opportunities and economic opportunities if uh, companies, say, are now moving out of China um, and moving into to other parts of you know Southeast and South Asia. Now, obviously, there are a lot of broader global economic developments that affect that, um, but this US-led uh, pressure campaign on, on Chinese high-tech is only going to ramp up further in 2024 yeah yeah well thank you for that well let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back Well, let's move on to the Americas. Um, and we've got, obviously, elections in Mexico uh, and other things kind of going on there. So let's just have a look at that area. Yeah. So Mexico is another election that I think, uh, despite it being our, our southern border here in the United States, uh, most of us here uh, and probably the rest of the world are, have not been paying too much attention to the election here. Um, this is mm. slightly, uh, I would say, less significant from a policy standpoint, because we do expect general policy continuity from the outgoing government, you're only allowed to serve one term as the Mexican president mm. um, to the new one, um, given kind of what current polling indicates. Um, but, you know, the the U.S.-Mexico dynamic in terms of border security and migration um, is really something that is going to occupy not only the attention of the Mexican election, but also the U.S. election. I mean, if we were to forecast what is going to be, for instance, a, a top issue in the U.S., race, it's already been seen, you know, the border um, is absolutely going to to be, you know, a crucial uh, topic of discussion and, and what's something that the Democrats are going to be under constant pressure from Republicans over kind of their alleged inability to, to handle the migration. Within Mexico, one of the main things that we're looking at, and this actually connects quite nicely back to our previous conversation, Chris, is Mexico as a destination for proverbial nearshoring, friendshoring. Mexico is really trying to take advantage of a lot of companies that are now either 
looking or fully moving out of China and other parts yeah. of, of Asia to move closer to the United States. Um, and, you know, it's had some successes here, uh, but uh, there are also some major challenges, um, including uh, with its energy sector. Um, you know, the the current president, uh, AMLO, has had a, a somewhat controversial policy here. Um, his predecessor, his successor, who who we expect to come from, you know, kind of his, his handpicked successor, likely to, to shift some things here. Um, so th- this is something that we're looking at very closely because the whether mm. or not Mexico can really capitalize on this drive to to become a, a mm. destination mm. for companies that are leaving China is a bit of an open question. We've seen some some successes, but whether it can truly take advantage uh, remains to be seen. Yeah, yeah. Are there any thoughts on um, the situation kind of developing in Venezuela at the moment? It's, it's a great question, and that's also one of the tensions. Is we we limit we're limited in the things that we can address. Um, and, you know, there, there are t- yeah. plenty of other topics that we left on the proverbial cutting room floor, so to speak, where we talked about them. We decided ultimately it wasn't going to be as significant. We wanted to focus on other things. But the situation in Venezuela is a, a, an important one. And so I, I can briefly address, you know, we actually saw quite a bit of movement on this issue um, in the last weeks of 2023 um, with the uh, kind of back and forth between the government of Nicolas Maduro and the opposition, you know, the the opposition, despite clearly having a, a lot of popular support, has really been neutered by by Caracas. Um, you know, security services have just clamped down on, on public unrest, um, really prevented the opposition from gaining traction. Um, Mexico, or excuse me, Venezuela, in theory, uh, will have quote unquote elections uh, this year. We don't expect them to be free and fair. We expect Nicolas Maduro's government to, to remain in power. Um, and, you know, as a major energy producer, as a major source of, of emigrants that are heading towards the United States, you know, what happens mm-hmm. in Venezuela matters, you know, beyond the beyond the country. Um, it also has a big impact, say, on security in Colombia. Um, a lot of Colombian armed groups are, you know, uh, kind of have safe havens in, in Venezuelan territory. Um, so there are a whole lot of ways in which Venezuela matters beyond the country. Uh, but the short answer is we don't expect there to to be any sort of democratic revolution. Nicolas Maduro and his cronies will stay in power. Yeah. Um, and yeah. the, the humanitarian and security tragedy there will definitely just uh, continue. Yeah, yeah. One last thing in the Americas before we move on. Um, I noticed you mentioned in the report about Argentina expecting um, unrest and it it just flagged up to me because last time uh, things got bad in Argentina it led to the invasion of the Falklands <laughs> I was just wondering should that be something to keep an eye out for <laughs> I, 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 I do feel confident in saying that the the Falklands or the the Malvinas if I were to, mm. to take the Argentine perspective mm. are, are not on the table for for 2024 um, but you know we've already seen kind of some of what we expected just in the past few weeks since uh, libertarian president Javier Millet has taken office mm. you know he's made good on his pledges to radically tried to change the economy. Um, He's obviously facing some pushback both in the courts and in the legislature, uh, but he is basically pulling all the levers um, that he has kind of promised so far. He hasn't gone as far as trying yet to de-dollarize the economy as he pledged, but in terms of deregulating it, um, removing subsidies, et cetera, he's he's firing on all cylinders at the moment. Um, And so while there may be a long-term economic gain from that, I mean, you know, the Argentine economy is, uh, has been just kind of a, a tragedy for many years now. Inflation is mm. and unemployment mm. are at record levels. Um, it's, you know, if you're trying to start or operate a business there, it's incredibly difficult with different exchange rates and export tariffs, et cetera. 
So there may be long-term gains. Uh, the problem is those won't be realized for some time. And in the near term, there's going to be more proverbial pain um, as these things get implemented. So, uh, for instance, you know, already we've seen um, a few, you know, mass protests uh, led by unions pushing back against these mm -hmm. things. Um, and so looking at 2024, you know, this risk of social unrest is going to remain high. We're going to see a lot more um, policy back and forth as melee battles with the courts and the legislature to try to get his reforms implemented. And while, you know, they may end up creating a, a better economic situation, um, he's going to be under constant political pressure um, and the constant threat of social unrest through the course of the year. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for that. But close to home for me then, let's talk a little bit about what's going to be happening in Europe. It's again, quite a few things going on uh, this year. Yeah. And you know, it's, part of this is headlined uh, by the fact that we are going to have parliamentary elections uh, midway through the year. Um, and mm. believe it or not, the, the European Parliament does in fact matter, um, you know, especially as we We've seen um, in a, quite a few countries, not all, but quite a few, uh, a bit of a rightward shift in recent elections. Mm. Um, so the expectation that you know uh, right-wing parties will will do comparatively better is definitely something we're looking at. What that means for things like the energy transition, for support for Ukraine, etc. All things to to bear in mind. Um, but uh, there are uh, you know a couple of you know key countries. Obviously, we're always looking at uh, thinking through within the European Union. You know, obviously the chief powers, Germany, France. Um, um, you know, our basic outlook here is um, a lot of policy gridlock. Um, you have the Schultz government in Germany um, that's, you know, leading this very precarious so-called traffic light coalition of three main parties. Mm. It's under mm. significant pressure. Um, it's struggling to, to implement its policies. We're, we're not foreseeing... Um, an early election just yet, um, because basically all the parties know that if there were to be one, they would probably lose. Um, so it's not in their interest, um, but it's going to really slow down policymaking in Germany. And then similarly in France, um, you have a, a parliament that's in continuing to push back against President Macron. Um, and, you know, we even just saw a few weeks ago with like this debate over an immigration bill there um, that the the political uh, political stability in France um, is definitely under threat as you have kind of a divided legislative and executive branch. Um, and that's just going to make kind of getting anything done very, very hard for, mm. for Macron and the rest of the government. Yeah. And I think I think also you mentioned the report, there's an unease in Europe about the American elections that are coming up and this potential um, whether this will come up in the election or not sure but it's potential desire to sort of become more independent from uh, american support if there was anything on there you wants to mention yeah absolutely and this might be one uh, if you can call it a positive positive for macron who's really led the european champion to be quote unquote strategic autonomy um which mm. means a lot of things to different people uh, but you know <laughs> yes. in, in blunt terms i think basically refers to the idea europe needs to be able to support itself more on its own and less dependent on america for um, chiefly military but also economic support um, and mm. so you know if you have growing unease in europe of another trump presidency and we know that what that will mean for kind of alliance and partner structures uh, a significant de decrease in them um, this is a potential gain for macron as he's been really the one championing this policy so we do expect mm. there to be more noises about this in 2024, especially as the election in the United States nears. Um, and, you know, if Trump does in fact win, 
And you can expect that our 2025 forecast will have uh, quite a, a, a lot to say on what this means for countries in Europe um, that have been the traditional, you know, alliance partners for the United States. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, before we move on to Eurasia, I'd be uh, remiss to not mention the UK because we've got elections coming up this year. And I was just intrigued uh by what the report was saying about that. And um, yeah, I'll let, you, I'll let you talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, because you maybe we should have you write our forecast um, as, you know, our, our man on the ground. Uh, <laughs> you know, the I think it's safe to say that the Conservative Party is is under siege all over, both in mm. within the party, mm. um, massive splits, uh, but also then obviously, it, you know, it, it's polling tremendously behind the opposition Labour Party. And so if you believe the polls, um, it's kind of just a, a matter of how badly the, the conservatives will lose the election. Um, you know, mm. we're not in the business mm. of necessarily calling elections, but we are in the business of forecasting what will happen if a different party wins or if there's, you know, uh, mm. policy continuity between governments. Um, and so you know, up into the the election, you can expect the conservatives to try to do a number of kind of you know populist handouts, uh, try to to drum up some support. But there's going to be this inevitable tension between a more kind of um, extreme right part of the party um, and mm-hmm. proverbially more um, centrist rightist, if that makes sense. Um, and and Prime Minister Sunak really faces a, a really challenging balancing act here because on the one hand, he needs the support of, of the right wing of this party to to basically do anything. But at the other hand, time, if he kind of gives into them, so to speak, and takes increasingly right-wing positions, that alienates him with a number of voters uh, and makes the labor case uh, even easier. So, you know, I, I know even I think just yesterday, we're, we're recording this on Friday, you know, Sunak basically intimated that the second half of the year was likely to be an election rather than the first half. So I suppose he's gambling yeah. that maybe the conservatives can make up a little bit of ground in the first few months and at least not lose as badly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, mm. the, the the Tories are certainly in a, in a tough spot. Yeah, they are. I'm just, my, my fear is, um, it, it's, it reminds me a little bit of 2015. Um, there was a similar situation with the polls where it felt like that the conservatives were definitely going to go after their first term. Um, and then, Obviously, they didn't. So I'll be really, it's really difficult to say what's going to happen with British politics because so many things could happen and affect things. Um, but uh, there definitely is a sense of changes coming. But yeah, sorry. One one positive thing that, you know, I think we can say, Chris, is mm. that the, the rapprochement mm. between London and Brussels um, is, you know, another positive sign for 2024. You know, obviously, mm. in the wake of Brexit, mm. um, we've now a number of years out um, and there's still unresolved issues. But under, you know, Sunak's government, We've seen, you know, increasingly positive relations between uh, UK and, and Europe. But this is another one of those issues mm. where mm. intra-party disputes within the Conservatives are, are, are a challenge because you obviously have still a, a right-wing faction that wants nothing to do with the European mm. Union. Um, but progress that we've seen on, on in things on chiefly like the Northern Ireland Protocol, etc., um, have at least suggested that you're going to see at least a, a closer relationship, even if there are still a number of disputes. There's, you know, some unpleasant pleasant rhetoric. Um, we're, we're not seeing this sort of massive divergence between the UK and the EU um, that could have mm. been the truly worst case scenario. 
Yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, let's move on to Eurasia, um, because we've obviously got the continuing war of Ukraine, and as we mentioned earlier, the the Russian elections. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I mean, the the Russian elections, I think we can safely say, as I mentioned earlier, are are not exactly going to be elections, but more of another coronation. Um, Expect Putin uh, to remain in power. Um, You know, we, the the only thing I would say that's really notable for um, the domestic situation in Russia is, is still in the context of Ukraine war, what we expect from mobilization. You know, Putin's really been at pains uh, to not portray this as a formal war, you know, still referring to it as a special military operation, trying to keep a semblance of normalcy. Uh, but, you know, the the more Russia prepares for a long-term conflict, um, even if it's one of attrition that it, you know, is succeeding in, the more the economy, the society needs to be put on that war footing and the harder it is to kind of pretend that this isn't an actual war. Mm. Um, and so, He's going to continue to basically, we we expect certainly before the election, no major mobilization, nothing full. There's a you know greater likelihood, at least comparatively, that later in the year you could see some more mobilization. But our basic forecast is we still expect Putin to to try to avoid anything resembling a, a formal, official-looking draft um, and more rely on kind of ad hoc means. So you know even earlier this week we saw him sign a decree basically saying that if you fight for the Russian army or crucially Russian paramilitary forces you and your families can become Russian citizens. So basically, you know, giving, for instance, uh, foreigners the opportunity, um, if anyone would really like that, I'm not sure why, <laughs> um, to, to become a Russian citizen and fight that way. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. going to, say, more um, uh, convict um, uh, uh, mobilization, p- taking people from prisons, um, those type of things. Uh, but we don't expect uh, that there's going to be you know, certainly not before the election, any sort of formal mobilization again, um, even though Russia definitely still needs more manpower in Ukraine. Well, what does the report talk about with Ukraine? What do we think the outcome will be for this year? Yeah, so this is, you know, something that uh, has definitely changed significantly in our thinking from um, 2023 Mm. to 2024. You know, 2023, our forecast uh, was that Ukraine would struggle um, to, to make significant gains in this uh, counteroffensive, which which is what came true, uh, but there was a lot more momentum behind the Ukrainian cause. This year, I would say the the script is flipped in that Ukraine is definitely now much more on the defensive. I mean, thinking ahead towards as we spoke about at the beginning. Um, the kind of falling Western support, um, or at least delayed Western support, um, you know, that's a trend that's only going to accelerate over the course of the year. And Ukraine yeah. fundamentally is still, you know, heavily reliant on the West for military and economic assistance. Um, and so, you know, our basic expectation is this is now um, kind of a, a more defensive battle. We don't expect any major territorial changes. Uh, obviously, there will be smaller offensive. You know, you've seen even just in recent days, Russia. Um, appearing like it, for instance, it could make some moves around Kharkiv uh, in Ukraine. Uh, but fundamentally, you know, the defensive lines are now incredibly well dug in. Um, both sides are kind of mm. hoping that the US election in the fall um, and other European polls, you know, result in governments that are either more pro-Ukrainian or pro-Russian. Um, and so fundamentally, we see this really as, as, as a stalemate in 2024. Our forecast for 2025, though, will be 
is significant based on the outcome of what we see in a lot of these elections. Because for instance, if the Trump administration returns to the White House, you get more right-wing governments in a number of European countries. That's going to really give Vladimir Putin a, a nice birthday present and really put Ukraine on the defensive. And so that would open up 2025 uh, to be a different story. But for now, it's much more one of kind of a, a wait and see um, uh, stalemate as we see it. Yeah. Thank you for that. Let's take a look at South Asia. What should we expect in that region? Yeah, so this is probably the one, Chris, that actually I might say interests me on a personal level the most uh, mm. because you have a huge amount of elections here, not least in the world's largest democracy, India, uh, that actually is so large that it takes multiple weeks to complete. Uh, but even just this coming weekend, you're going to see really uh, crucial polls in Bangladesh. Um, we're also going to see contested elections in Pakistan, Sri Lanka will see yeah. local votes. So you've got a huge chunk of, of the region voting. Um, and this is an area of the world where you see a huge amount of competition. Um, between China and the United States for influence. Um, you also see a lot of um, attempts by Russia to remain relevant, and, uh, and particularly with its key partners, uh, kind of that it's had for its oil sales and military sales in, say, Pakistan and India. Um, but uh, you know, fundamentally, if we're, if you're looking at the the key countries here, it's obviously India. Um, where you know, if, again, we're not in the business of, of calling an election, but if you believe the polls, the most likely scenario is Narendra Modi's BJP party will will win re-election. You know, they they've seemed uh, on the whole largely unstoppable. Um, you know, the the opposition Congress party faces a huge number of challenges, not least of which is is that it can't really seem to to galvanize people in the way it used to, and it's you know. Really been circumscribed and some you know political um you know political abilities to, to really implement any significant policies in the few areas that it does control in the country um so you know we're expecting you know a lot of kind of policy continuity um from the modi government assuming it's re-elected mm. uh which is which is a kind of proverbial um positive and negative thing, depending on how you look at certain issues. So, you know, on the one hand, you're likely to see a lot more kind of Hindu nationalist rhetoric, um, which is obviously a concern, um, not just for for India, but for, for the world. Um, if you have a government that's increasingly marginalizing, or at least being alleged to marginalize, say, you know, the massive Muslim minority that it has, that means there's real risks of violent unrest surrounding the polls, um, more contentious issues. Um, on the other hand, you're also likely to see a lot more efforts um, by a another Modi government to continue with economic development, things like the Made in India plan, which are, is again, like kind of like Mexico, like other countries trying to take advantage of companies that are looking for new places to, to make goods. Um, and India trying to establish itself as, as that center. Um, it faces a number of stumbling blocks, not least of which is red tape um, that, you know, the Modi government has been trying to slash, but there's just a lot to do. Um, and so those are some of the things that we'll be looking at in India over the course of 2024. Yeah. And um, there's also an election in Pakistan happening this year as well, isn't there? Is there anything you mentioned about that? Yes. I mean, this is uh, a huge back and forth here. You know, elections in Pakistan are sadly yeah. always, you know, thought of as important because of the risk of violence. And this is tragically, you know, confirming that trend. Um, but, you know, the the Pakistanis have really had a, a kind of a, a miserable trifecta of political, economic, and security crises all going on at the same time. Um, and so against that backdrop, you have um, 
you know, an election that uh, theoretically is supposed to be held at the beginning of February. Um, we'll see if that perhaps gets delayed, which would be its own issue. Um, and a lot of this is centered around former Prime Minister Imran Khan, who is, you know, mm. forced out of office mm. um, and has basically been trying to lead a popular opposition movement um, since then. Um, he's really been um, clamped down upon by the Pakistani government um, and its backers in, in the military. Um but whether or not he's able to sufficiently galvanize enough people at the polls um, next month will will be a key thing to watch. And even if he doesn't succeed, if he's able to frame himself as kind of the victim and allege improprieties, you have a really combustible situation, unfortunately, in Pakistan. And I don't even you know mean to elevate. You know, everybody always talks about Pakistan. It's a nuclear armed country. We don't even need to go there. Um, we don't need to involve nuclear weapons. It's combustible already on its own just by the power cuts, the militant attacks that's been facing, the massive political instability. Um, so this is another another thing to watch. And obviously, you know what happens in Pakistan um, has huge ramifications uh, beyond just the region, given the the weight that it holds. Mm, definitely, definitely. Well, thank. Thank you so much. We managed to get through all the regions. So thank you so much for that. Um, I did have one last question because this year is kind of the year of elections. I wondered whether or not this might be the year of an increased risk of low level terrorism, especially in Europe, because usually when there are elections, there are kind of like political groups and terrorist groups who like to try and sort of um, take advantage of that. And I don't know whether there was anything mentioned um, in your offices about, about that kind of topic there. Yes. Our, in fact, our other um, more tactical security forecast that we didn't focus on today does include this quite a bit. Um, and our basic expectation is, yes, across the board, the terrorist threat to the West is going to increase in 2024, driven not only by a number of elections, uh, but by fallout from the, the Gaza conflict, of course. Um, and I should also be clear here, we're not just talking about Islamist extremism, but also far-right extremism, um, a whole disparate set of extremist ideologies here. Um, so not only do you have elections, um, and the fallout from Gaza. Uh, but I should also point out you have a number of high-profile other events, like for instance, the Olympics mm. in Paris. Um, yes. you know, even for for weeks now, you know, the, the French security forces have been almost weekly coming out uh, with new updates on what they're planning to do to, to try to prevent attacks. And so, you know, when we're thinking about the terrorist threat to the West, you know, since you know, I would say approximately 2018 or so, when ISIS really lost um, its last major territory um, in, in Iraq and Syria, um, the threat has mainly been from lone actors, small groups of individuals in the West, kind of inspired by some of these foreign terrorist groups. We have thankfully, and you know, I'll, I'll knock wood on my desk here, and not seen you know any sort of a replication <laughs> of the the major directed attacks that we saw earlier in, in the 2010s. Uh, for instance, uh, obviously the most tragic ones being in Paris, but in a number of other countries uh, in the West. And so what we're seeing here still, you know, if you're thinking from a security services point of view, on the one hand, when you're dealing with lone actors and small cells, they can, in general, uh, in general, <laughs> do less damage than a kind of coordinated, directed terrorist attack. When you only have one or two people, you know, just the the amount of violence you can cause is, is comparatively limited. The challenge is it's much harder to identify those people in advance. So that's why you see kind of these lower level sophistication attacks, whether it's a stabbing um, that's horrific on its own, um, but you know, compared to what a, a foreign directed attack could do, thankfully less intense. The, the flip side of this is that 
you know, terrorist groups, whether it's ISIS, Al-Qaeda, et cetera, have been under significant counterterrorism pressure abroad, but that doesn't mean they've stopped plotting. I mean, obviously, we saw just earlier uh, this week, uh, ISIS claimed these twin bombings in Iran, um, you know, showing that it really can still cause a lot of damage and it has strong intent to go after minority groups in the West. Um, and so, you know, the pace of plotting um, and aspirational goals of these groups absolutely remains. And so, when you're thinking through ways that 2024 could differ, we assess that in general, the, the threat of some of these foreign uh, groups being able to successfully conduct a mass casualty attack while still very constrained, the it has increased a bit in likelihood just given the global events that you talked mm -hmm. about, whether it's you know elections, these other hope pride file mm -hmm. developments, the fallout from the the Gaza war in which you know Islamist extremists in particular are absolutely looking to take advantage of that. Um, and so I would say yes, in general, the terrorism threat has increased. And while these foreign groups still face a lot of constraints on their ability to mount an attack, we definitely uh, are concerned that there is a little, at least this year a little more of an opening that they might be able to do something. Yeah, yeah. One to definitely keep an eye on. Well, thank you very much for all that. Um, Sam, is there anything else about anything that we've talked about today that's important to you you'd like to add at all? Oh, boy. Well, we, you know, I think we did a pretty good job, Chris, going over the entire globe. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a lot of different things we didn't get a chance to touch on. Uh, but uh, I guess uh, maybe I'll say that, uh, you know, for anyone that's interested, you can obviously uh, read our work at, at rainnetwork.com. Uh, we publish three more quarterly updates. So you'll be able to see uh, the trends that we got right. Uh, hopefully very few things that we got wrong. Um, and otherwise, uh, I just really appreciate you having me on and taking the time to, to chart out what we think 2024 will look like. Yeah, well, no, thank you for your time. I will just add, I think the report is beautifully presented There's some great maps and infographics on there. Um, and it's definitely very much worth people pursuing and finding out more about if they can. So, uh, you know, thank you for sharing it with me. Um, and thank you for your time today. So, uh, yeah, Sam, you take care. And I look forward to catching you again in the near future. Thanks very much, Chris. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. 